Welcome to The Investigation. I'm Senior Executive Producer Chris Blasto. We're going to be taking a week off this week and be back next week with more interviews and analysis. In the meantime, we hope you give a listen to something else we're working on here at ABC News. It's our daily podcast called Start Here. In just 20 minutes, host Brad Milkey will get you caught up on all the stories that will be driving your day. If you like what you hear, don't forget to head over to Start Here. Hit subscribe, and we'll be waiting for you in the podcast feed every weekday morning. It's Tuesday, June 25th. Iran says sanctions started this mess. Well, guess what they're about to get more of? We start here. President Trump slaps sanctions on the Ayatollah. The supreme leader of Iran is one who ultimately is responsible for the hostile conduct of the regime. Does that mean we're even with Iran or are we just getting started? Bernie Sanders wants to eliminate college debt. All of it. It's not like money from the sky. It is money from taxpayers. A lot of candidates have proposed something like this. What would it actually look like, though? And you can't get fired for your race or gender, but you can definitely be fired for being gay. Why can't they teach in a Catholic school? Why, if they're doing a great job, if they're fully capable? One by one, a Catholic archdiocese is looking to force teachers out the door. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. When an unmanned American drone was shot out of the sky last week, everyone agreed immediately this was Iran. But there was this strange moment where President Trump seemed to give Iran an out, an off-ramp to disavow responsibility. I have a feeling that it was a mistake made by somebody that shouldn't have been doing what they did. I think they made a mistake. Well, yesterday, Iran and the U.S. both took part in a meeting with the U.N. Security Council. These are radar pictures. Clearly shows that... And if there was any doubt that this was intentional, Iran erased it. There is no doubt that that drone was, in fact, in the Iranian territorial, over the Iranian territorial waters. Iran says this drone wandered into our airspace. Of course we shot it down. But the U.S. says Iran's own data show it was only in its flight information region, which is way different. Planes fly through that all the time. Are you going to shoot all those planes down? But diplomats were not only there to argue over where the shooting occurred. They were also there to talk about President Trump's decision to impose new sanctions. We have additional sanctions to go after the Supreme Leader's office and lock up literally billions of dollars more of assets. Remember, sanctions are the name of the game for this regime. Sanctions are the reason for a lot of this conflict. Now we're seeing more of them. ABC's chief White House correspondent Jonathan Carl is with us. He's in the West Wing. And Jonathan, how hard hitting are these sanctions? Well, they're directly targeting the Ayatollah. The supreme leader of Iran is one who ultimately is responsible for the hostile conduct of the regime. That said, uh, Brad, this administration uh, has turned the screws pretty tightly on Iran. Iran right now is an economic mess. They're going through hell. We're seeing 50 percent inflation. Uh, You know, they've basically been uh, largely cut off from the the world's oil markets. Uh, So, uh, you know, these are simply additional sanctions that go directly at the Iranian leadership. Why is that so significant, Jonathan, that that the Ayatollah... Well, you know, first of all, I, I, you know, I don't know exactly the Ayatollah's uh, personal banking um, uh, situation, but I, I don't believe he has an account at Citibank, you know, so, um, so I'm not sure how much it's truly going to bite. So I just want to be very clear. We are not looking 
at creating issues for the people of Iran. Having said but that, the effort here is to make the leadership, the decision makers feel the pain as well. Yeah, or I guess the cynical version would be you can say you're instituting new sanctions. That's great without it actually affecting Iran all that much. And I say that because all these attacks, right, not, not just the military, but the proxy groups. I know uh, Yemen rebels actually attacked a Saudi Arabian airport this weekend. Like all of these attacks can perhaps be tied back to Iran getting desperate over sanctions. If we apply new ones here, is there a chance they attack us harder? Well, if, if you read what the Iranians are saying, particularly uh, the, the, the Revolutionary Guard, they see sanctions as an act of war. We are not in the business of succumbing to, to, to pressure. The U.S. has been applying pressure against Iran. They see what it's and done to their economy, what it's done to the country. They sanctions. see this as an act of war. So that, as long as this threat is, is there, there is no way that Iran and the U.S. can start a dialogue. So we're at a situation where it's a question of how do you expect the Iranians to respond? Now, you see from the president himself that he is making an appeal to negotiations. He wants to sit down with, well, he'll sit down with the Ayatollah. He'll sit down with anybody without preconditions. We'd love to be able to negotiate a deal if they want to. If they don't want to, that's fine, too. But it's a real question here. Is it going to bring them to the table or is it going to provoke them uh, to further engage in attacks through their proxies? And, you know, it doesn't look like they're running to the negotiating table. Well, that's what I wanted to ask is what is next here? Because President Trump told The Hill he doesn't need congressional approval for military action here. I like the idea of keeping Congress abreast, but I wouldn't have to do that. Sure. Nancy Pelosi actually said you must have congressional approval. So you disagree with her on that? I disagree. I think most people seem to disagree. But and I guess I'm just kind of confused over whether... We still have a score to settle. Like, did we get him back for the drone here or not? Or is each country kind of like, we're even, we'll start from here? The administration has made it clear, the president has made it clear, that the issue now is the nuclear program. Now that Iran, freed of the nuclear agreement because we tore it up, uh, is, is, is talking about ramping up their uranium reprocessing. Now you, you are at a situation where the focus is not trying to get the tit for tat for the downing of our drone. I think a lot of restraint has been shown by us, a lot of restraint. And that doesn't mean we're going to show it in the future. The White House did quietly greenlight a cyber attack, disabling software on computer systems used to control rocket and missile launches. We carried out the cyber attack. I mean, that could be seen as the retaliation. We have these new sanctions. That can be seen as the retaliation. I am no longer hearing uh, from anybody high up in this administration about talk of a military counterstrike to what happened to our drone. Yeah, moving on is the message here. And Jonathan, we'll let you do the same. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Brad. When it comes to immigration, news about ICE raids was supposed to drive the news cycle for the next couple of weeks. Will they happen? Will they not? Immigration officials said the reason they did not go forward this weekend was because of leaks, although President Trump himself wasn't exactly secretive about them. The deportation raids, as you call them, are really uh, a group of very, very good law enforcement people. But this week, it's reporting from ABC News and the Associated Press that has people around the border talking about a different angle. This felt worse than jail. The sanitary conditions of border detention facilities, especially the ones that house children, in some cases, babies. They're sleeping on concrete blocks. There are open toilets in the room. There is no soap. We actually saw movement on this yesterday. The AP is now reporting hundreds of children are moving out of one of the facilities in question by Customs and Border Protection. 
I want to turn to John Cohen right now. He's a former Department of Homeland Security official. Now he's an ABC News contributor. And John, safe to assume that these kids then would have more access to soap and clean clothes at least? Well, hopefully. Uh, Customs and Border Protection really had no choice after uh, the, the public reporting of the horrific conditions. The children were visibly ill. They were coughing. They had uh, mucus running down their face. Their clothes were dirty. They were not being given showers. They were not being given access to soap. I mean, they had to move them. They, they had no other choice. But you know, this reporting is yet another in a growing list of uh, incidents and circumstances that have been reported by the media or by watchdog groups that just show how conditions at the southern border have deteriorated under this administration. President Obama separated the children. Those cages that were shown, I think they were very inappropriate. They were built by President Obama's administration, not by Trump. Well, had President they deteriorated, John? Because the Trump administration took pains to point out this weekend that you know, under the Obama administration, we saw people on the floor. We saw people sleeping under those space blankets. You worked for the Obama administration. Has it just always been this way for immigrants being detained? No, absolutely not. And the suggestion that conditions haven't deteriorated at the southern border under under you know through the last 2 years is just just blatantly wrong. Um, yes, during the Obama administration, as with other administrations, you experienced surges. But what was very different during those administrations is that when there were issues at the southern border, uh, the whole government would come together uh, and allocate resources to, to address the problem. What we're seeing today is that there is no organization across the federal government. The Department of Homeland Security is essentially being left to deal with this issue alone. Uh, funds are not being moved as they should be. But President Trump's trying to get funds from a national emergency declaration, right? The president declared a national emergency. He has the ability to move money to deal with the conditions of the border. The problem is that money's not going to deal with the humanitarian crisis. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this. But I'd rather do it much faster. He's seeking to move money to build a border wall, which would have no impact uh, on the crisis as it currently stands. Hey, are we going to end up seeing ICE raids then, John? I mean, President Trump says he wants to give lawmakers a couple weeks to hammer out a more comprehensive immigration plan. Nancy Pelosi says she's got one. No one thinks it's going to pass here. But if the idea of these raids would be to catch people by surprise, how do you do that at this point? Brad, I've, I've spent well over 34 years working in law enforcement and homeland security, and a good portion of that time has been focused on dealing with issues at the southern border, whether it's drug trafficking, immigration, or terrorism. For the life of me, I cannot figure out why this administration would announce during this period of time, this interior enforcement operation. So what DHS is basically telling us is, don't worry about the increase in mass casualty attacks in this country. Don't worry about the humanitarian crisis at the southern border. Don't worry about the fact that we are uh, potentially going to war with Iran and there may be domestic threats to the United States as a result. Don't worry about the increase in cyber attacks. We're going to divert resources from all those activities and we're going to go after families. And the president has said you are not going to see widespread changes to the system without significant changes to asylum policy quickly. John Cohen with the Inside Perspective. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon, man. Next up on Start Here, how much college debt can this country forgive? A growing number of Democrats are saying let's wipe the whole slate clean. Right now, Democratic presidential candidates are in full-on debate 
prep mode. We actually learned Cory Booker's pre-debate ritual is to do a bunch of push-ups and drink LaCroix soda. Kirsten Gillibrand reportedly has two aides playing the other nine candidates who will be on stage with her later this week. Campaigns say they'll expect to get about seven to ten minutes each to talk. It's not a lot of time, so you got to choose topics that matter to you. And for many Americans, that is student debt. The millennial generation was told that the only way they would get the good jobs available is if they received a college education. Unfortunately, that turned out to be bad advice. Yesterday, Bernie Sanders became the latest candidate to release a proposal that would eliminate current school loans. Now, other candidates have done this, notably Elizabeth Warren, but Sanders is the most sweeping, and he got a stamp of approval from none other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says she's still paying off her loans. It was literally easier for me to become the youngest woman in American history elected to Congress than it is to pay off my student loan debt. But one and a half trillion dollars. Really? Let's get some perspective here from someone who studied the topic. Sandy Baum is a professor emerita of economics at Skidmore College. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute, where she works on education, data, and policy. Professor Baum, thanks for being with me. Happy to talk with you. Thank you. Glad you're here. So can you just do a quick thought experiment with me? I mean, say Bernie Sanders' plan magically gets enacted right now as is. What happens? What does that world look like? The reality is that what we're saying is we know that a lot of Americans are struggling. Some of those people are struggling with debt. There are student debts. There are medical debts. There are people who owe their utility bills. There are car loans. We're going to pick out college loans. One out of six seniors will graduate with over $50,000 in debt. If you have college loans, we're basically going to send you a check. Maybe we'll just write, we won't send you a check. We'll say you owe the government money. We're going to just pretend like you don't. We'll just write it off the government's books. But if you didn't go to college and you don't have any student debt, sorry, you're not part of this effort. Only people who went to college. Those who are graduating medical school and dental school and nursing school are finding themselves in some cases with three or four hundred thousand dollars in debt. And in particular, we're going to give very big checks to people who went to graduate school and borrowed a lot of money. Oh, so, because they owe $200,000 all of a sudden. So it's, it's, it's as if you're writing them a $200,000 check. That's a, that's exactly correct. If somebody borrowed a couple hundred thousand dollars to go to medical school or law school, they're going to essentially get that check in the mail. Another part of the plan is to make public colleges free. And, and there are different versions of this idea, right? Like Elizabeth Warren sort of fired this up a while ago. Are there direct comparisons to be made? Well, it is true that Elizabeth Warren doesn't say we're going to forgive all debt. We say uh, that we are going to roll back student loan debt for about 95 percent of students who have debt. She says only up to $50,000 per borrower. And there are a few borrowers who owe more than $50,000. Mostly they went to graduate school. And not for everybody. Uh, If your income is above $250,000, we won't forgive any of your debt. But that's most people. I mean, that's a lot of people. And the reality is that most people who have student debt actually owe less than $10,000. Most people who default on their student loans owe less than $10,000. So they don't need all that forgiveness. They're going to get a small check. They're going to be very grateful for it. Well, Professor, it sounds like you're going to tell me, you know, Bernie Sanders' plan, waste of time, right? I mean, there is the idea here that you had people who were told, you got to get this degree. 
Now they've got all this debt, but they can't even use that degree to do what they wanted to do. Like, they just have to take a bartending job to pay off their loans. Are you just saying, you know, there are bigger groups out there to worry about? Right. I mean, student debt is a very big problem for some people, so I don't want to downplay that. And here is a sad truth, another sad truth regarding this whole crisis. Many students are dropping out of college. I mean, people who drop out of college with debt and they never get a degree are really struggling to repay because they don't get the financial benefits. Mm. We should protect those people. But most people with student debt don't owe that much money. And most of the people who are struggling in particular don't. So, yeah, if you think about what could we do with that $1.6 trillion, you know, what about early childhood education? What about K-12 education? What about all the people who don't have access to health care? You know, it's it's great to think about helping people and certainly people with student loans, but targeting that much money on this particular problem is something we should think really hard about. Our proposal, which costs $2.2 trillion over 10 years, will be fully paid for by a tax on Wall Street speculation similar to what exists in dozens of countries around the world. Both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say that all of the money is going to come from taxing people at the very top of the income distribution. So, you know, if they can do that, that's great. There's a lot of controversy about how much money those tax proposals would raise. It's not like money from the sky. It is money from taxpayers being transferred to a select group of people in the population. So a lot of these people would end up paying higher taxes in exchange for that benefit. Now, the proponents would say this is not a zero-sum game. You forgive this debt, and they say the economy gets a huge bump. Everyone gets along better. Sandy Baum from the Urban Institute. Thanks a lot, Professor. Sure, no problem. Thank you very much. It was kind of strange timing when the education arm of the Vatican recently announced during Pride Month that kids should not be taught being transgender is a legitimate concept. The Vatican has released a document on gender theory saying the idea of fluid sexual identities is based on a confused concept of freedom. And experts reminded us that just because Pope Francis has seemed more conciliatory with gay and lesbian Catholics, officially the church still views many aspects of the LGBTQ movement as sinful. Now to the battle pitting a Jesuit school against the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Well, in the last 48 hours, an openly gay teacher was fired from a Catholic school in Indiana at local church leaders' request. And this is part of a larger purge happening in this area. ABC's Megan Keneally's been covering this. And Megan, I mean, just so I'm clear, you can't be fired in this country for your race or your disability. Is this legal to do? Technically, it is, because being gay isn't a protected class in the U.S. On top of that, we're talking about what's happening in personnel decisions at private Catholic schools, where they're arguing that it's not so much that they're gay, it's that they're going against the church's teachings. So what happened here was on Sunday, Cathedral High School in Indianapolis, they announced that they were separating from a teacher. They said they called it an agonizing decision, but they were basically firing this teacher because he had a same-sex marriage. The school saying the Indianapolis Archdiocese sent a letter demanding his employment be terminated because he's married to a man. The school isn't doing it on a whim. They're saying that the Archdiocese is telling them to do it. Well, so there's there's one Archdiocese in charge of all of Indiana. It's in charge of all of its Catholic schools. And they're saying, what, fire your gay teachers? Look, the Archdiocese is claiming that it's not about the teachers being homosexual. It's about the teachers 
being representative of the Catholic faith. And this thing that is a part of their life is not representative of the faith, and they don't want that teaching going on in the school. Uh, so being married is specifically part of the issue then, right? Like you're openly defying the teachings that marriage is between a man and a woman. Exactly. So this school isn't the only one dealing with this issue. A local Jesuit school was told point blank that if you don't fire this gay teacher that you have on staff, then the archdiocese is going to cut off all association with your school. The school said, fine. He's a longtime valued member of the school. He's an excellent teacher, highly qualified. We're sticking with the teacher. Cut off communication with the archdiocese. So different schools are responding in different ways then to this edict. Exactly. There are two schools that have dealt with this in a few days of each other, and they've gone in separate directions. Why can't they teach in a Catholic school? Why, if they're doing a great job, if they're fully capable, if they love their students and the students love them? One school supported their teacher and cut ties with the church. The other school stuck with the church and cut ties with the teacher. And a lot at stake here. The school said it would lose its nonprofit status if it didn't comply. The other school that held firm, it's a Jesuit school. They have a slightly different affiliation with the archdiocese. And that archdiocese, we should say, gave ABC a statement saying, when an educator isn't living by our teachings, quote, the church calls us to help the individual strive to live a life in accordance with Catholic teaching. Megan Keneally, thanks for filling us in. Thanks so much, Brad. And one last thing. There are lots of schools in this country, particularly in the South, but in many states that are named after Confederate leaders. Some schools want to rename themselves. But say you run Robert E. Lee High School. You got signs that say Lee High School. Lee's on the football helmets, the cheerleading uniforms. You got the Lee marquee out front. What if you don't have the money in your budget to change them all at once? Well, some schools have resorted to renaming themselves after different people named Lee. The Wall Street Journal reports that instead of paying $1.3 million to change everything, Robert E. Lee High School in Northeast Texas realized they could save a million bucks by calling themselves Legacy of Educational Excellence, Lee High School. Suddenly, the football field did not have to be repainted. Signs could remain in place. In Houston, Lanier Middle School used to be named for Sidney Lanier, Confederate soldier. Now it's named for Bob Lanier, the former mayor. In Austin, Robert E. Lee Elementary now commemorates Russell Lee, an old photographer. And as the debate continues over whether these names are oppressive or simply historical, you know, some school board president is furiously searching Google, asking, where is Harper Lee from? Is she from around here? Can we use that? That author is from Monroeville, Alabama, where you should know the high schools include Monroeville High and Union High, and there are currently no name changes scheduled. And I know you were wondering, Kathy Lee Gifford was born in Paris, France. She did go to Bowie High School in Maryland. Not sure we would see Kathy Lee High there, though. Start here tomorrow. Just hit subscribe. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.